Good morning, church. I am going to be reading the scripture for us today. Um, if you could, if you have your Bibles with you, if you could turn to Matthew 25, 1 to 13. If you don't have a Bible with you today, our Frontlines team is here with Bibles, so please put up your hand, and they'd love to bring you one. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love you to have this Bible to take home as a gift today, so um, feel free to take that with you. So again, we are reading from Matthew 25, 1 to 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and the five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks with oil in their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. After the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. If you do not know who my wife is, this was my wife. So thank you, Andrea, for reading for us today. Well, I'll be honest with you. Um, Maybe I shouldn't always need to say it that way. I'll be honest with you. I think I'm trying to be typically very honest with you. Um, But I'll be honest with you about this particular teaching is that uh, I've had some sort of like tension about it it, because it's very tricky. And uh, on surface reading, it, it doesn't seem to be that tricky, but if we are becoming more and more familiar with Jesus' parables, you're becoming more familiar with the fact that, that as simple as the parable seems to us, Jesus was using each and every single parable to subvert the culture of his day, in particular those that were religious, to help them understand the true nature of the kingdom of God. And so this parable is extremely tricky, and there's some tensions here, and so what I'm going to try to do today, in the best way that I can possibly do, empowered hopefully by the Holy Spirit today, is help us understand what's going on here. And I trust that you'll see the tension as we come to the end and also recognize the great need that each and every single one of us have uh, for Jesus to to change our hearts. And that's really where we're going to land today. If you are new with us and you're not a follower of Jesus, just want to say, hey, we're so welcome. You're so welcome here. We're glad that you're here. We want to be a place uh, for skeptics. We want to be a place for people of many different faith backgrounds to come together and ask the hard questions of life and hopefully come to some sort of answer as far as what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to engage with the scriptures as we believe the Bible to be uh, God's word to us. So we're so thankful that you're all here today and, uh, and that you will hopefully be listening over the next little bit. And as I said, that the Holy Spirit, God himself, would transform your heart. Well, uh, many of us over the summer have taken some time away. Um, For some of us, that would be vacation. For some of us, maybe it was preparing for a work trip. Uh, For others of us, maybe you haven't been able to take some time away in the summer. But 
the illustration I'm about to share will hopefully uh, be helpful to you. Now, every time uh, I go on vacation, uh, my wife will oftentimes ask me, Andrea will oftentimes ask me, are you ready to go on vacation? Are you getting excited? And what I typically say back to her is, I'll be excited when vacation starts. I'm not going to be excited before. I have this ability uh, to compartmentalize, okay, this is my work life. That's going to be my vacation life. I'm not on vacation yet, so leave vacation alone. I'm going to live my life here, and then I'll be ready to go on vacation. But then what the something that happens is that we actually go on vacation and it actually takes me a couple days to realize that I'm on vacation. And it's, it takes me a little while to get out of sort of work mode or I've got to accomplish things, I've got to get things done mode into actual vacation mode. Another reality of the way that I oftentimes think about vacation and the way I do this is that when I'm preparing for vacation, I, I don't do a very good job of it. What I mean by that is that if there were to be like sort of a spectrum of like the person over here that is really well prepared, they're thinking about vacation a month before you're going on it, you're already starting to write the list, you're starting to emotionally invest in the idea that you're about to go on vacation, and then the other side being like, oh, it's vacation time, I better throw some things into a bag and go, I am far closer to that, let's throw some things in a bag and get going. But if, if you've been in this sort of situation before, you know some of the problems that arise, right? And one of the problems is, if you're last minute like that related to your vacation, you're naturally going to forget things, right? You're going to go away. I remember I was at a, speaking at a retreat, so I was away for the weekend speaking at a retreat, um, doing four or five different sessions, and I'm there, and I forgot my toothbrush, and I was like, oh my goodness, like people are going to be wanting to come and talk to me. So not only got to be concerned about my hygiene, but you know, I've totally forgot my toothbrush. Or last, last year I went away and I was speaking at a camp for a week and be doing the same in a week's time. And I forgot my hair gel. Now, some of you know I'm a bit of a prima donna when it comes to my hair, but I was really concerned about this that I forgot my hair gel. And so I went and found somebody um, and I said, hey, uh, super embarrassing. Can I please... Uh, borrow your hair gel for the week. And he's like, actually, I'm nearing the end of like my particular wax. You can have it. And it was just still sort of, it sort of threw me off for the rest of the time. But you understand that as you prepare for vacation, there are a couple of different ways of going about it. And the way that this parable reads is in some ways, it's helpful to understand that illustration. Because the question that Jesus is answering for us is the question of, are you going to be prepared for when I return? And this is one of the basic tenets of the Christian faith, believing that Jesus will return to the earth and that he'll bring justice, he'll bring his righteousness, and the world will be remade and we'll spend eternity with him. That, that's a core tenet belief. But what many people in our world, not just Christians alike, are asking the question is, will we be ready for his return? And that's a very big question. Now, in chapter 24 of Matthew, the chapter before chapter 25 of Matthew, Jesus is answering this very question. And chapter 25, I believe, can be broken up into two parts. One is in which Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. And that does, in fact, happen. So Jesus prophesying the destruction of the temple. That does, in fact, happen a number of years later. But then the second half of the parable is specifically about when Jesus will return to this earth. And nearing the end of that chapter, in Matthew 24, verse 44, we read this. Therefore, you also must be ready... For the Son of Man, speaking of himself, is coming at an hour that you do not expect. At the end of chapter 24, he then gives this very difficult teaching. And he says this in verse 48 to 51. 
as he's talked about a wicked servant and a righteous servant. He said, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not like the most lovely of verses in the whole of the Bible, right? What is Jesus saying here? And in here, he's, he's talking about the nature of when Jesus returns, there will be judgment and there will be justice. But will you be ready for his return? Will you be prepared? And then in chapter 25, Jesus then shares this parable with us of Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13, to illustrate for us, to use a metaphor of will we in fact be prepared for the return of Jesus. So here is what this parable is. As I usually do, we'll go by line by line and it'll describe some of the nature of the context to help us, and for it to be illuminated, what this actually means. So in typical form of Jesus and his parables, he says this, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. Now, there's nothing, I looked into it, there's nothing specific of the nature of these women being virgins. They could also be maidens. Uh, It's just a simple description of these ten women. These ten maidens, these ten virgins. Jesus is describing the kingdom of heaven, as we've discovered this summer, that's similar to when Mark, in his gospel, his biography of Jesus, speaks about the kingdom of God. What does it look for the rule of reign in Jesus to be extended? What will that look like? Here, Jesus is showing us a picture of that. So he says, this kingdom of heaven, where the rule and reign of Jesus is, will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now, contextually, what is going on here? Why are these ten maidens or why are these ten virgins going to meet the bridegroom? And in those days, around a wedding, typically the groom would take a bit of a trip from his house over to the house of the bride. They would then go from the bride's house, they would then go from the bride's house back to the groom's house. Okay, and on the way back to the groom's house, there would be a procession through the streets, and that's when people would come and typically join the procession to carry on to the groom's house for the big celebration. And so what we are being described to here is these 10 women are preparing for this celebration. They're coming to the place where they're going to join this procession back to the groom's house, and they're going to have the big party. They're going to have the wedding feast. They're going to celebrate it. And as we discovered last week, these sorts of celebrations would last anywhere between two and four days. And so they're getting excited. They're getting ready for this party. And so Jesus is laying out the groundwork for us here. You can tell that these women took their lamps Now, their lamps would have been rags on the end of sticks, and to keep them lit, they would use something like a kerosene to keep their lamps lit. So they're bringing their lamps, they're getting prepared for the king's return. We then read in verse 2, gives us more description about these women. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. Verse 3, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Okay, so verses 2 and 3 are helping us get a little bit more of the context of what's going on. We have 10 maidens. We understand five of them are wise. Five of them are foolish. Why are some wise? Why are some foolish? Well, the foolish don't bring along any extra kerosene for their lamps. The wise, however, bring along extra kerosene. Now, on surface reading, this, this seems to make sense, right? Like these women were clearly unprepared where the other ones were prepared. 
But contextually speaking, and this is really, really helpful for us to understand, and this is what Robert Farrah Capone in his book Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment writes about this. Notice how Jesus deliberately stands things on their heads. The five supposedly foolish girls, knowing that they have been invited to a daytime wedding that will last only into the early evening, reasonably assess their needs and content themselves with taking filled lanterns with them. Nothing could be more sensible. But the other five insist on dragging along bleach bottles filled with kerosene just in case. Nothing could be more idiotic. They have complicated their lives by preparing for an utterly unlikely contingency. And so here we have the tension. Because on reading, it would seem like the five wise were just doing what everybody should have done in bringing along extra kerosene. But as Capone helps us understand, that was actually nonsensible. It was like the five that were described as foolish that they're actually doing the very sensible thing. It's unlikely that the bridegroom will actually be delayed, and so we're not going to be caught carrying around jugs of kerosene at a wedding. Like, you know, sort of imagine yourself, right? You're at a wedding, and you've, you've brought along, you're carrying along something extra that you probably are not going to need. Like, let's say you bring along three or four pairs of uh, pants, extra pants with you to a wedding, and you've got your bag, and you're sort of sitting there at the wedding. You know, you're in the receiving line, you've got your bag of five pairs of extra pants. And people are like, why do you have five pairs of extra pants in your bag? What's your duffel bag for? Oh, my five pairs of extra pants, because you never know how the end, you know, never know how the reception's going to go right? You'd look strange. These women are strange in the fact that they have seen fit that they are going to bring along extra kerosene. And as you know, some of us understand the teachings of Jesus. He says about the foolish and the wise, the foolish of this world will be the ones in the end who are wise, yet the wise of the world will be the ones that are foolish. So we're starting to see Jesus cut through here as to helping us understand the meaning of this parable. Let's keep going. Shocker, verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So a complete turn of events. The bridegroom is delayed. It wasn't sensible that he would be delayed, but here the bridegroom is delayed. They all become drowsy and slept. All of them. All ten maidens sleep. Verse 6. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The moment they have all been waiting for and sleeping for, trim their lamps. Let's keep going. Verse 8. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps, they're going out. And suddenly it all becomes clear as to why we have five maidens who are wise and why we have five maidens that are foolish. Some are prepared for a delay. Others are not prepared for a delay. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, writes this, They will see their need of grace hereafter when it should save them, who will not see their need of grace now when it should sanctify and rule them. I'll read that again. They will see their need of grace hereafter when it should save them, 
who will not see their need of grace now when it should sanctify and rule them. Jesus continues, But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. The simple response is, I'm sorry we cannot share. You're going to have to go and get your own. If, if we share with you, we're not going to have enough for the rest of the preparation, for the rest of the celebration, and so you must go. I'm sorry we cannot save you. In actuality, if you understand anything about boundaries, they're practicing good boundaries. I cannot save you. I can only save myself. Go and take care of your need. We have ours met. It's a dangerous thing to try to constantly save other people. That doesn't mean you don't bear one another's burdens, but to try to extend yourself and get them to the feast on your strength, on your power, on your resources. The lesson here is you can't do it. Verse 10, And that while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he, truly, he says, and he answers, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Just so we're aware, these are dreadful words to hear from the groom. Verse 13, Jesus makes his summary point as he does typically at the end of all of his parables. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The point Jesus is making is clearly stated in this summary. You do not know when the bridegroom will return. So watch, be prepared, wait diligently. Or put another way, be prepared, keep watching. You do not know when he is going to return. So, there you go. Let's, uh, let's continue singing. Would that be enough? No. How do we apply this? I think the first point is, is very helpful, and it is this, and it's, it's simply put in this last statement, is that we will never know when Jesus will return, but we can prepare for his return. The scriptures are quite clear across the board. You will never actually know when Jesus will return, okay? Despite what many other religious sects tell you, sects being S-E-C-T-S, you can never really be completely sure when Jesus will return, only the Father knows when Jesus will return. So be weary of anybody that tells you Jesus is coming back on this day. No one knows. So we will not know when Jesus will return. But we can be prepared for his return. And that's the point of this particular parable. Now then we got to ask the question, well, okay, how can you be prepared and the first one, the first thing that would seem to be obvious is what we believe. It's in our attitudes. And the second thing, as we'll discover, is how we live and our behaviors. So the first thing, preparation through our beliefs. Now, Rabbi Zacharias, um, uh, quite well-known Christian apologist, says this of our worldviews. He says, everybody should answer, be able to answer these questions. And to answer these questions, we'll decipher and give you your answer to what your worldview is. The first question is an origin of me, uh, your question of origin. Where do we come from? The second question is a question of meaning. Why are we here? 
Thirdly, it's a question of morality. What's right and what is wrong? The fourth being destiny. Where are we going? Every worldview must answer these questions. Christianity offers this que- this answers to these questions, and every other worldview answers, has answers for these questions. And so the task for you and I is to decipher which of all of these different worldviews is the most congruent, which one makes the most sense in light of all of these questions. Zacharias, uh, Ravi himself, would say Christianity. I would say the same thing. It's why I'm standing here today as your pastor doing what I'm doing. The second part of preparation is preparation through how we live. James 1, verse 22 to 25, reads this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So, to review... How can we be prepared? It would seem, on the surface reading of this text, that the way to be prepared is to believe the right things and to do the right things. But is that what Jesus is saying? Because here's the problem. Okay, are you ready for this problem? And I live in the tension of this problem because I'd love to say just believe the right things and do the right things and all's good. Because here's the tension of the parable. The problem is this. Our beliefs and our actions may not be enough. Now, let's just let that sit for a second. Our beliefs and our actions might might not be enough. Well, Matt, how, how can you say that? Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this to those that are listening. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's really interesting about what he said here, right? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees were the experts on what they believed was believing the right things and doing all of the right things. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness, unless your obedience is greater than the scribes and Pharisees, You shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's bad news. Like how many of you struggle to obey all the rules? How many of you struggle to every single day just believe all of the right things? So what this shows us is that maybe that will never be enough. It's like you can maybe believe all of the truths of what Christianity says. You can show up every Sunday because you believe that's the right thing to do. You can participate in a missional community, which is our way of discipling each other. You can do all of these things. And at the end of the day, it still might not be enough. And you might be asking the question, well, how do you know this? How do I know this? Well, as Robert Farrah Capone points out about this context— Remember what he says about the five that were seen as wise by Jesus, but the other five insist on dragging along bleach bottles filled with kerosene just in case. Nothing could be more idiotic. They have complicated their lives by preparing for an utterly unlikely contingency. So if, if, let's just kind of do some review, okay? Because this is challenging, okay? I'm gonna, I'm, I wish I could just say that upon my first reading of the text at about Tuesday at lunchtime, I was like, okay, I think I got the message. 
And then I went for a run. And I was struggling with this tension in my mind of like, Jesus, what is Jesus saying here? What is he saying? Because I think it would just make sense to believe the right things and do the right things. But these five did the things that seemed like the least likely thing that they actually needed to do. They were doing things that nobody told them that they needed to do. The first five were a group of women that they believed that what they were doing was the right thing that they should do. The five that didn't bring along the extra kerosene. They were like, you know what? Nobody told us to bring along any extra kerosene, so we're invited. So we showed up. What typically happens is he's not delayed, but now he is delayed. How are we to know that? So they weren't prepared. So you can believe the right things, you can do the right things, but still something is missing. And I think this is what Jesus is saying the solution is. The solution is preparation through transformation. John 3, verse 3, and then 5 to 7 reads this. This is, again, Jesus' teachings. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sounds. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Interesting. Or how about Jesus earlier than chapter 25 in Matthew 16, verse 24? He says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That seems really backwards. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, puts it this way in in Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. What Paul is speaking to and that Jesus is inviting us to is not to a life of just believing all the right things and doing all the right things. He's inviting us to a life of complete transformation. He's saying, not just your actions need to be changed, your heart needs to be changed. You need to be able to foresee things that nobody else is going to foresee. And in that place, you need to be motivated. This is a a person by the name of Jordan, a a college student, quoted by David Platt in his commentary here on Matthew. He writes this, I prayed to ask Jesus into my heart when I was younger. Yet as I grew older, I knew that I had done that and was doing all kinds of other activities in the church in order to earn the favor of God. Until one day, I was finally confronted with the extreme tension that exists between my sinful self and God's holy nature. I realized that only Christ's work was sufficient for the favor of God, and I fell on my knees in fear and trembling and adoration and confessed my need for Jesus. Now I know I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You know, maybe some of us in this room could identify with what Jordan has said here. I prayed the prayer. 
I do the religious duties that seem to, some other people tell me, are, are, are the good things I need to do. Yet the condition of your heart is no longer changed. And so Jesus' very difficult teaching here is that preparation comes through transformation of the heart. Now then you might ask the question, well, okay, uh, okay, okay, so how do I figure that one out? How do I know if my heart has changed? What a tough question. How do I know if my, my heart has changed? And here's the thing. I would love to find a book that's like eight specific evidences to a transformed and changed heart. Right? I mean, I, if I were to write it, I'd probably sell a lot of copies. It'd be a great way to make some money. But here's the problem. Is sometimes there are evidences I'm going to give us what I think are, are potentially two. But only God knows your heart. And only God knows what's going on inside of your heart. And you need, you need the Holy Spirit to change your heart. You need the Holy Spirit to come in and dwell inside you and literally regenerate you. That's what the, the, this Christian language is for a person whose life has been changed, that now they're regenerate. They've been changed. They've come to life. They've died with Christ, and they've come to life. That's why we baptize people as adults, to, to show the sign, the symbol of you're, you're dying with Christ. You're now raised to life. You're regenerate. You're truly alive in Christ. Here are a couple of things that I would, I would just simply point out as some, some bit of evidence. The first one is this as I'm learning in my own life, is that you become emotionally available to the king. Now, I would, you know, I've tried to be as transparent as I can with you. I don't tell you all the details related to my therapy, but I've tried to at least be honest as I've gone through this process. And what most uh, therapists, Christian therapists, will tell you And uh, what most people who have been doing and about the Christian life for quite some time will tell you, Pete Scazzaro would tell you in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, is that you can only go as deep spiritually as you're willing to go emotionally. That your emotional health is interconnected with your spiritual health. And so the question that Jesus wants to, how's he going to change and transform your heart, is by allowing Jesus to have emotional, an emotional place in your heart to captivate your heart, to captivate your emotions. It's not just simply an intellectual exercise. As much as intellect is important and valuable, the renewing of our minds, it's also allowing Jesus into the crevices of our heart that we've kept him away. And saying, Jesus, I need you to transform me. I'm in pain right now. I need to invite you into my pain because you, Jesus, understand pain. So change and transform my heart. There's an emotional availability to the king as evidence of a transformed heart. And then secondly, evidence of a transformed heart is preparation when it doesn't seem necessary nor sensible. Right? Like this is, this is the one proof in the pudding that we actually have of this group of maidens is that they did the unsensible thing to their culture. They did the truly unsensible thing. There was no reason, I say it again, there was no reason for them to bring along extra kerosene. But they did. 
They did what everybody else thought was absurd in order to be prepared. You know, um, there was this great question that I had growing up as a teenager, um, and the question was related to sexuality, how far is too far? Uh, you maybe have asked that question yourself from time to time. You know, somebody who is uh, doing the unsensible thing, the one that's prepared and for the, you know, the, the lack of sensibility, isn't asking the question, how far is too far? It, that person that is, that is asking that question has probably already believed some lies about God and about the Holy Spirit. And so as a result, it's, it's unsensible to, to ask that question truthfully if, if our hearts have been transformed. Because the great end goal of the transformed heart is to make much of Jesus to know Jesus more, for his, his name to be glorified and magnified in our lives, that the end goal of every single day is that I got to know Jesus more today. I, I know him a bit more today than I did yesterday. I want to use an illustration. Uh, the, the, one of the maybe, I, I don't know, I've given some time and thought and prayer to this, so I'm going to try to give an illustration, and obviously illustrations at times fall short because, I mean, this is a big thing we're talking about. But uh, as I shared last week, I do weddings for people, right? Uh, it sort of comes along with the job in some ways, although I needed to be ordained in order to get a wedding license. But I now have a wedding license. So, you know, if you're serious about the person you're with and you'd like to talk about that, you know, come and talk with me. But here's what I watch as I watch couples get prepared for their, get prepared for their wedding because, you know, weddings are, are, a, are an enormous stress. And... Um, I don't think I've ever met a couple yet that wasn't stressed about their wedding. Um, but here's what happens when you're preparing for a wedding, right? You, you're so overwhelmed by this one day, by this one day that doesn't even last 12 hours, typically. Uh, you know, the majority of, of weddings now, you know, usually start between one and three, and then the couple usually leaves around 11 o'clock. Well, they've got other things to do, of course. And so you, 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 you celebrate this wedding, and it's a sh very short period of time, but the, the preparation for this day has, has been far more, right? And, and I meet with so many couples, and I do premarital counseling, um, which I think is very good. It's actually shown that uh, it lowers the divorce rate by 30% if you do some sort of premarital preparation, which I think is just a fantastic thing. There's actually, I'm just going into details here, but there's some actually municipalities that give you a discount on your marriage license if you've done premarital preparation, which I just think is brilliant. Uh, so get involved in civic leadership and implement that, please. So anyways, what I'm saying is, is that as you prepare for this wedding, um, you can see the couples who genuinely are still in love by the time they get to their wedding day. And you can see a change in couples that are so overwhelmed with the, the intensity of planning a wedding that they forget about how much they love their, their partner. You know, like there's something that drives, there's something that drives a couple if they're convinced that the wedding is, is the first day, sort of the rest of their lives together. And then there's a change of the couple that's like, you know, as long as we can just get to the day, I mean, this is overwhelming us. Like, I remember, you know, and I can confess it, I was so excited on my honeymoon, not just because of the obvious, but also because of the reality that, you know what, we did not have to plan a wedding anymore. Right? It was like, my oh, it is good to not have to talk about a wedding. And you know, no, very little went exactly as we wanted at our wedding, but it didn't matter because we were married. 
Friends, I, I think we could say the same, and I could maybe apply it back to the, the preparation analogy of going on vacation. You know, the person that truly thinks forward and, and emotionally prepares for their vacation is ready for their vacation when they get there, and they can soak up sort of every moment. They've, they've been thinking about it for a while. They've, they've made changes in their lives that seemed not very sensible, like, I've made a list, you know, two weeks before vacation of everything that we're going to need and all the groceries we're going to need to take. If I were to try to, in some way, illustrate this, I think that there's something with those two illustrations related to this parable. That, that the, one, the one group of people is asking, what are the things that I have to do to prepare? Whereas the other group of things is, what are the things I get to do to prepare? And such is the Christian life. And let's be honest, there are days where it feels like have-tos. But my prayer for my own Christian journey is that there will be more days that are get-tos. That the, the glory, the beauty of the groom is changing the way I live today and it looks so lack of any sort of sensibility to the world that watches. But man, am I ready for Jesus. So a few questions to reflect on. I mean, this is a very simple question, but are you excited about Jesus? Have you emotionally opened yourself up to Jesus? And are you regularly connecting with him? Not just connecting with the Bible and that you can check, have a check mark at the end of your day that you did it, and you know, you can now on the Bible, version Bible app, have a streak, you know, and it like lets you know, like, you're on a four-day Bible reading streak. Yay! For me and all my friends on my Bible app, great. Look at me, I'm so good. But is that time purpose that I can get to know Jesus a bit more? And he gets to know me. And then lastly, rather than having to, are you motivated towards spiritual disciplines because you get to? You know, I think, I think as we've talked about in many of these Jesus parables, I think many of us are just so convinced that the things of this world are so great that Jesus has lost, you know, his, the flame. You know, the wedding is so big and that, using that analogy that we forget how wonderful our partner is that they're willing to spend the rest of their lives with me. So here's what we're going to do. Okay, I, I realize I've gone a little bit long, but I had no idea how I was going to do this any shorter. I'd love your feedback, actually, if you thought I could do it way shorter. Um, but here's what I'd like us to do. We're going to celebrate communion, which I think is very beautiful for a day like today. And, uh, you know, maybe you've intellectually understood Jesus. You intellectually understand, you know, arguments for God, not for God, uh, for um, heaven, not for heaven, whatever it might be. What I want you to do today is specifically invite the Holy Spirit to do a work in your heart, to do a work in your life. That if you're still dead, that he would bring you to life. And that if you're feeling dead this week, that he would spark love for God in you today. And then as you come out of that, I invite you to go to our communion table over here. Is there one at the back there? Where are we going? We're going to deliver it. Ooh. So here's what you don't even have to do. Stand up. So we're going to invite the ushers to come, and they're going to take the communion elements, and they're going to pass them around. Now, very specifically, if you don't love Jesus, don't take communion, 
All right, the bread will just get stuck in your teeth and the juice will not wash it out. All right, I'm just, just warning you. But if you know, listen to me, I'm being serious about this, because it, but if you know and love Jesus, you know that these are far more than just a bread and a cup of juice. This is a way that we celebrate and remember our great king who has given everything for us so that we can give everything for him. Maybe some of us need to have a time of just confession and repentance. Jesus is not as beautiful as he ought to be. I invite you to do that in your seat, but also come forward to the front with people that would love to pray with you. And then if after you take communion, you'd like to just come and set yourself apart and sort of sit on this floor here, we, we allow that every single week. We invite you to do that. It might be today an actual physical representation of you confessing and asking the Holy Spirit for more. And so I'd invite you to do that today. Let's pray as we do that. So Holy Spirit, we invite you. Earlier we sang, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. And so we ask you to do that now. And I pray that we would desire life. Not a life dictated by things that we have to do, by, but dictated by a way that we get to. Oh, Jesus, I hope I've taught this text accurately. So do what only you can do. In your name.